Hi, my name is Elena and I'll be doing the second Bible reading today from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come now when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Thank you, Elena, and thank you, Ishka, for praying. Uh, do keep your Bibles open. We'll be reflecting on both those passages in, in Exodus and John. Uh, but as we have a look at this topic, God is Spirit, let's ask God for His help that we might understand Him rightly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word, we pray, Lord, that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most important questions anyone can ever ask, and even children ask this question, is, what is God? 
not who is God, but what is God. Now, how would you answer that? Where would you begin? Well, when our kids were a little younger, and when we went off on holidays on these long drives, one of the things we would do in the car when the kids were getting rowdy was we would play a game. And that game's not I spy, but instead I would say to the kids, how about we learn the Westminster Shorter Catechism? I've got this app on the phone and all 107 questions are there. Now, if you don't know what that is, it was written by the Westminster Assembly, called by the English Long Parliament in 1646 and 47, and it is a series of 107 questions and answers about core Christian doctrine, core Christian beliefs, what we believe about Scripture, what we believe about God, about Jesus Christ, about salvation, about this world, about us, and also about the church. And it was used historically to teach youth and children about the Christian faith, questions and answers. And so you're asked question five, what is that and what's the answer? Now, I can't say that our kids, when we played this game, I called it a game, I can't say that our kids were overly enthusiastic about it. In fact, one time we could only manage up to question 10. But the very first one, the very famous one, you would know. What's the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Well, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, I think it's still true today in the Free Church of Scotland. When children are able to answer all 107 questions accurately in one sitting, they get presented a Bible. But anyway, when you get to question four, do you know what question four is? Well, it is that question, what is God? Now, if you learnt the catechisms as a child, it should just roll off your tongue. And if you want to start, you can download the app. But the answer is this. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, Charles Hodge, a theologian and principal of the Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1850s, he described this as the best definition of God ever penned by man. And over the next four weeks, we'll be considering those four attributes of God. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And again, we have to remember, when we come to study God, we don't study God like he's a subject beneath us, but we are in fact studied by God, because we are put in our place before the awe and majesty of who God is. And so today we'll be considering the first part of that answer. God is spirit. Now what does that mean? Is God like some impersonal power or energy or force that pervades the universe, a bit like in Star Wars? Or is God a set of moral principles objectified and worshipped what is god what do we mean by god is spirit well firstly what we mean is that god as spirit speaks of his transcendence he is beyond us and above us in every single way he is beyond the entire world order he is above us he is 
uncontainable by finite reality. A bit like how Solomon tried to describe what God was like after building the temple and dedicating the temple. He went on to say, or God said, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And so Solomon, having built the temple, it was grand. It was extremely grand, but it cannot contain God because God is spirit. Now, second, God as spirit speaks of his sheer godness. He's not bound or limited to a physical body like we are. You see, having physical bodies, we are limited, we are bound, and we get old, and you just can't help that. I mean, as much cream you like to use on your face, wrinkles will still come. Under lockdown, Yvonne had to cut my hair twice, and she said to me, I don't want to cut it too short because you are losing your hair. You see, we are bound, our physical bodies are limited, but not God, because he is spirit. Three, nor is God bound by time and space. Now, when we talk about God not being bound by time, what we mean there is that God is eternal. And so we'll reflect on that topic in a few weeks' time. But when we talk about God not being bound by space, we speak of God being omnipresent, which means he's all-present. He's at the same time present Everywhere because he can. He is spirit. We can't be everywhere. We are bound, we are confined to where our body is, but not God because he is spirit. And that's why King David in Psalm 139, he said, Where can I go to escape your spirit? You see, there is no escape from God. Four, God being spirit means that he is invisible. He is immortal. He is not the stuff of this world. He is not the stuff of the created order. He stands above it and over it. And he is the most perfect being there is, the highest manner without any limitations. That's what we mean by God is spirit. And that is why in the second commandment we are not to make any idol in the form of anything in heaven above or earth below. Because, you see, trying to represent God in a physical way will always dishonor God because God is spirit. But now our question is, if God is spirit, how do we, physical human beings bound by our bodies, limited in our minds, how do we come to know God if he is invisible, immeasurable, uncontainable. How do we come to know God? Well, the profound thing is that though God is spirit and therefore unknowable by us, he made himself knowable. Though God is spirit and therefore invisible, he made himself visible. And though God is spirit and he is unapproachable, he made himself approachable. And so we'll consider this talk under those three headings. First, God is unknowable, but yet knowable. This is the question about how do we come to know God if he is spirit? We can't, we can't see him, we can't touch him, we can't feel him. 
How can we know anything about God if he is not physical? The confession says that he's without body or parts. You see, it's not as though if we want to know God, we can just give God a call like a friend and say, let's catch up at the cafe, let's have a chat, let's hang out together, let's go on holidays together so that we can get to know you. No, we can't do that with God. He doesn't have a physical body. He is spirit. But yet, at the same time, though God is spirit, the notion of God is not foreign to humanity. Though it seems so foreign and abstract, the idea of God may be said to be innate in us as human beings, such that even the complex idea of God and Godness and deity, it comes naturally to even children. You see, when we try to understand something like calculus, it takes a lot of hard work. It takes perhaps years of struggle, and for some of us, it still escapes us. And you have to put in a lot of hard work to be able to understand the subject of calculus. But yet, even the simplest and youngest minds can find it easy to accept and understand God. But even though, as human beings, we have this innate understanding of God... How do we come to know who he truly is? Because whatever our concept of God may be, he remains spirit. He's intangible. Arthur Pinker, a theologian, he gives this wonderful illustration. He says, suppose someone who's never seen a watch before discovers a watch in the ground, picks it up. Well, this person can infer that well. Here's a watch. There must be a watchmaker. And that makes sense. But then from there, he cannot then start to presume what this watchmaker is like. The personality of this watchmaker or the moral character or the mannerism of this watchmaker. And he can't then move from there to say, well, I know the watchmaker. You see, he can't make that jump. You can't do that. Let alone making any jump like that to God who is spirit. Well, that was why Moses wanted to see the glory of God. He wanted confidence of who God was and who God is to him and that God will be with him. You see, we we can't touch God, but he wanted to know God. And so how? Well, in Exodus 33, he daringly asked God, well, show me your glory. And by that he meant, well, show me who you are. Let me know you are true. Let me know that you will be with me. And how did God respond? Well, for him to know anything about God, what was required was for God to himself reveal himself to Moses. God had to show himself. He could not work God out. And so the Lord said, we read on, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And so there we get the sense of the mystery of God. He is spirit. He cannot be fully known. You see, you you can't look at God's face. Otherwise, you'll die. He is that pure, that holy. And so any impure person like Moses, if he was to see God, he will not survive. But yet God did make himself known to Moses. And so in the next verse, the Lord said, 
There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. And so God is spirit. And God in his kindness allowed Moses to see something of God, not his face, but only the trailing edge of the glory of God after God had passed him by. God somehow covered him with his hands so that he won't be destroyed. But now some of us might be asking, well, isn't God spirit? How does he have hands? Now this is where we need to understand that in much of the language of Scripture, God is often described with human features. Hands and arms and eyes and legs. But does it mean that God literally has knuckles and bones and skin? Well, of course not. He is spirit. This is what theologians call anthropomorphism. It just means God freely and graciously accommodates himself to our weakness and to our finitude. He desires that we know him. And so he, in a sense, condescends to our level of understanding. He humbles his own nature to such representation so that we might know God and understand him. And that's what happened here. And so when God passed Moses, he saw and heard God's glory proclaimed in his name. How do you know who God is? Well, God made himself known by the proclamation of his name. And so in chapter 34, verse 6, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is who God is. He is spirit. You can't really see him. Moses only got to see the trailing edge of the glory of God, but he got to see and know God by what was proclaimed about who God is. And so how do you know God, who is spirit? Well, it's only up to God to disclose himself, which he did to Moses and, of course, throughout salvation history. And though God is spirit, God has made himself knowable by us mere human beings. And so God is unknowable. There is some mystery, but yet he's made himself knowable. And second, God is invisible. By the very fact that he is spirit, he is invisible. But because God is invisible, a spirit without body and form, the question is, how do we see God? How do we know with certainty? Well, there are passages after passages in Scripture that, that speak of not being able to see God. And so in John 1, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only. Or 1 Timothy 6, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. Because God is spirit, he cannot be seen. But yet in the immeasurable kindness of God and in the glorious trinity we learnt of last week, God descended from heaven to earth in his son, Jesus Christ. The invisible became visible, so that this world is left without doubt 
not only on the question of what is God, but who is God. And so we come to Colossians 1. He that is Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so to look at Jesus, to listen to his teachings, to watch what he did, what we are seeing is what the invisible God is like. And then a few verses down. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And so in Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of the invisible God. God is not like a spirit, like some impersonal force, but God is personal and has come close in the most tangible way, in his son, Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh. You see, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thomas Watson, the English Puritan, he he said once, Christ clothed himself with our flesh that the divine nature may be more pleasing to us. The human nature is a glass through which we may see the love and wisdom and glory of God clearly represented to us. Through the lantern of Christ's humanity, we may behold the light of the deity. Christ being incarnate makes a sight of the deity not formidable, but delightful to us. And so Jesus is God coming close to us in the most tangible way. It is why the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Christmas, which is coming up, is so profound. The invisible God became visible. And so God is unknowable, but yet knowable. He is invisible, but yet became visible. And third, God is unapproachable. And so the question is, how do we come to God? How do we engage with God if he is spirit? You can't see, touch him. How do we approach God if he is spirit? More than that, God lives in unapproachable light. Now the picture is that we can't lay our eyes upon God. Otherwise, we'll die. God is that pure, that holy. God is the perfect being. We cannot lay our eyes upon God. We cannot be in his presence. Otherwise, we'll just die. Imagine it's a bit like a a mosquito flying close to some flames. What will happen? It will get burnt up. It will disintegrate. Or better, imagine a mosquito flying close to the blazing sun. It can't get anywhere close before it dies. Well, that is what it's like for any one of us to approach God. He is that pure. And God said to Moses, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And so how do we approach God if he is spirit? Well, it is why this conversation Jesus had with the Samaritan woman was so important. You see, she was wondering, how do I approach God? How do I come to God? How do I worship God? Did the Jews get it right? Or did we get it right by coming to this mountain? And so in John now, chapter 4, verse 20, the Samaritan woman said, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, how did Jesus respond to that? Well, it's neither. It's wrong. And his reasoning was because God is spirit. God is not confined to any location or space. He is omnipresent. 
present, that, that word, God is all present because he is spirit, then approaching God must be done in a spiritual way. And that's how Jesus responded. And so Jesus said, verse 23, A time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seek. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. And so though God is spirit... God dwells in unapproachable light. We cannot come to God just because we want to. But yet God has made himself approachable. God is not limited to any physical location, nor can it be in a physical way that we approach God, but in spirit and truth. Now what does that mean? Well, to worship God, to approach God in spirit means we approach God spiritually. But there lies the problem. You see, we are not spiritual by nature. We are carnal. In fact, the scriptures speak of us being spiritually dead. We are all spiritually dead. And if you're spiritually dead, you are dead. If you're spiritually dead, you can't do anything. You cannot approach God just because you want to. You can't worship God just because you want to. Because you are dead. It is beyond us and we have no right. And so how can anyone approach God? Well, the only way that that is possible is by the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God who draws our minds to the truth of the Trinity, what we learned last week, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is, it is the Spirit who applies the truth of Jesus to our hearts so that we will know and trust that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity so that we will know the truth that Jesus became a man, died in our place, rose to grant us eternal life, and draws us into the love of the Father. It is that truth. And it is the Spirit who awakens our own spirit, gives us new birth, and helps us see the beauty and splendor of God. And it is the Spirit who enables us to join in the heavenly worship of God. That is what it means to worship God in spirit and truth. You see, if it were not for the work of the Spirit of God, we cannot worship. And that's why if we only you know, conduct rituals and ceremonies and all the bells of whistles, if it's all merely physical activity, it does not draw us any closer to God. And it is why every prayer we pray, it is a spiritual prayer. It is certainly not merely a physical activity like just the words out of my mouth, not at all. It is a spiritual prayer. It is to pray to God who is spirit through Jesus Christ, his son, who makes it all possible. And we do so in the power of the spirit. There is no way to engage with God unless we do so spiritually in spirit and truth. Uh, Bruce Milne, a theologian, he puts it this way. True and satisfactory worship is worship offered in and through Jesus Christ. Only through the truth he embodies and the spirit he imparts can we know God and worship him. And so though God is spirit, he's transcendent, he's above us and beyond us in every way. 
And there is no way at all that our finite minds, that our limited powers, that our physical bodies, that we can come to know God, see God, and be with God. But yet, the wonderful, profound news of the gospel is that the unknowable God has made himself knowable by his own self-revelation. It was always up to God to take the initiative, and he did. The invisible God has made himself visible in his son, Jesus Christ, such that God, who seems far, has come close. And the unapproachable God allows us now to approach him in spirit and truth. And he gives us his spirit so that we might have relationship and fellowship with him. And so what then does all this mean for us, that God is spirit? Well, end with three short points. The first one is there is no escape. There is no escape from God. Because God is not confined to a physical body, he transcends the whole world order. He's omnipresent. He's equally present everywhere. There is, in fact, no escape, no hiding from God. And that may be terrifying for some of us to hear. You see, for any one of us to think that I can live my life without God knowing anything, that I can even think in my thoughts, the secrets of my own thoughts, and to think that God is not there, we will be wrong because God is spirit. Or for anyone in this world to think, I can get away from God. I can get away with what I've done and no one will know. Well, that would be wrong because God is spirit. There is no escape. In Jeremiah, God said, Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do not I feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord. You see, nothing escapes the presence of God. Nothing. There is no running away from the presence of God. Whether we're at school, at home, in our bedroom, no escape from God. God is present. And God is present means that one day we will also face God. There is no escape. And that should give us a deep sense of comfort. Because it means that one day God will make all things right because he sees all things. Nothing escapes him and nothing will escape him. And so all the weakness and evil and corruption and the abduction we see in this world, we cannot think that God does not know. He is spirit. He knows. And there is no escape. Second, there are no excuses. You see, no one can say, because God is spirit, I can't see him, I can't touch him. That's why I can't know him. Well, there are no excuses. We have already seen God in his loving nature and his gracious condescension to our weakness, to our finitude. He has made himself known to us through salvation history and ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ, the one who makes visible the invisible God, such that not only can we know that God is spirit, we can now approach him. We have no excuse. 
we can now enjoy intimate relationship and fellowship with God. And because God is spirit, it can be anywhere. And that's why Jesus answered that way to the Samaritan woman. When we are home alone, when we go for a walk in the park, when we are in with the company of friends, or even when we gather as a church, for us to remember that there is no excuse for not knowing God because he has made himself known. And so for those of you who are still, in a sense, exploring who God is, hear what God has said. He has made himself known. There is no excuse. We can know him truly. And finally, there is no encouragement like this. What is more encouraging and comforting than to know that wherever you are in this world, wherever you are in this life, God is with you because God is spirit. God is not just there with us when we are in some sacred place like this mountain or that mountain or even to think that the church building is a sacred place. We cannot be confused in that way. God is with us everywhere. In fact, more than that, God is not only just with us, but because he is spirit, he can be in us. And that is the promise of the gospel. God is in us by his spirit. And so when I feel like in life that there is no one around me, no one who would stand with me, I can know this truth that God is not only with me, but in me because he is spirit. As I live my life alone without family who are far away, I can know this truth that God is with me and in me because he is spirit. In our church family, there are quite a number of us who live alone without family members around. And that can feel quite lonely. Many of our elderly members live alone. But each of them have that wonderful assurance, I know God is with me. Or when I'm in the hospital room and the machine is beeping away and the nurses are running up and down the corridors of the hospital ward and I feel like my body's weakening, I can know this truth. God is with me and in me because he is spirit. And of course, the great Christian hope. Even when I take my last breath and whatever that moment might look like, there may be family members around who are crying. There may not be. I might even die alone in my sleep. And whether my mind is with it or not, it most likely won't be. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I die knowing this truth. God is with me and in me because he is spirit. You see, when we apply our minds and hearts to knowing God, we are doing a profound thing. John Calvin, he once said, The majesty of God is too high to be scaled up by mortals who creep like worms on the earth. But yet... But yet, this transcendent, immortal, invisible King of kings and Lord of lords has come to us. And though we are mere mortals, he fills our lives by his spirit. Though we are like worms, we can know God and enjoy him forever. Amen. Let's pray. 
Lord, you teach us so clearly that though you are spirit, you are ever-present, beyond us and above us in every way. You are indeed with us. You have made yourself known so clearly in your Son, Jesus Christ. And the promise of the gospel is that you dwell even in us. And so we pray, thanking you to the God, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen.